Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Lane Davis, and I'm your host. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Peter Tucson, Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, and the author of the book we're talking about today, Tornado God, American Religion and Violent Weather, published this year, 2020, by Oxford University Press. Dr. Tucson, congrats on the book, and welcome to New Books in History. Thanks, Lane. I really appreciate your having me. Well, let's start just by getting to know you. Tell us about yourself, uh, your training, your research, what led you to this really interesting topic of weather and American religion. Well, I'm trained as a historian of religion in the United States, and I've been teaching that since 1998. Um, I did my graduate work in the Department of Religion at Princeton University, and then uh, taught for several years at Yale Divinity School and worked on a documentary editing project there, The Works of Jonathan Edwards. And then I was at Tufts University, Tufts University for several years um, before moving to IUPUI in 2004. And what drew me to this topic was really a childhood interest. I have been fascinated by the weather since I was a boy. I dreamed occasionally of being a TV weather caster, and I, you know, I loved uh, monitoring the weather with a barometer and, and other things hmm. when I was a kid. Uh, but um, as I got into the study of religion as an adult, one thing I realized was that weather is intimately connected to the. Uh, origin of religion. I mean, as ancient people puzzled over the storms that were afflicting them, they they devised religious explanations for those storms. And so, th- there's a lot written in the, the long history of the the, his, the 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 field of the history of religion about the connection to the weather. And so, it, it's something that puts me squarely in the field of religious studies, but also takes me back to a childhood interest. Very, very interesting. I I think that that, as well as what drew me to uh, an interest in your book, I I think anyone who has lived in particular parts of the country where uh, that that you know that weather is particularly uh, extreme uh, and that has maybe any kind of religious background naturally conflate these things. And so, uh, yeah, just a very interesting, um, a, a very interesting topic. So in the book, you argue that the, the tornado specifically as it's experienced in American life and culture, um, and, and I'm quoting here is at once culturally peculiar and religiously primal. The tornado is therefore both American and transcendent reflecting national identity even while exposing Americans to mysteries above and beyond themselves. So what first caught my attention about your argument is that while it makes complete sense when you think about it, um, tornadoes, even though they occur elsewhere in the world, really are a unique kind of American storm due to our climate here and because of where uh, we've chosen to build communities um, in tornado-prone areas. So it makes sense that American religion would grapple with these storms in unique ways, but your argument really reaches deeper into history to say that the U.S. itself was formed in the encounter between its people, the frontier, and its weather. So if you could, walk us through the way that you came to this sort of historical point of view. 
Sure. Well, I mean, you're right that uh, tornadoes, at least violent tornadoes, are a peculiarly American phenomenon. And that's one thing that I I had to grapple with in the book. Um, I mean, this is a question that uh, Americanists always puzzle over, you know, the the issue of American exceptionalism. And there is a certain kind of meteorological exceptionalism in the sense that... um, the Tornado Alley region of the United States gets these massively violent storms uh, that have always loomed so large in the American imagination. And yet, um, you know, the other part of the argument, as you point out, is I'm saying that there, there is, in the tornado, Americans are encountering something that's also uh, religiously primal that transcends that particular cultural location. Uh, and the primal aspect is the encounter with uh, forces of nature beyond uh, uh, humans' full understanding. And, and that's something that um, you know, modern people don't like to admit that uh, that's an experience. They don't like to admit that they they still have. We, mm. we w- would like to think that we understand the world with all the powers of modern science, and we have come to understand a lot about the tornado, uh, and yet there are still so many mysteries, and, and to me those mysteries have always been the heart of religion, and, and so it's those mysteries that Americans encounter in this particularly dramatic and, and almost uniquely American way when they see these um, violent tornadoes. Hmm. Now, you also use the tornado uh, towards the beginning of your book as a unique point of entrance into sort of the scholarly debate surrounding the history and the nature of religious studies. You bring in Rudolf Otto specifically into the conversation. And maybe for those listeners who may not have as much of a background in religious studies, tell us about Otto and then maybe explain how his work fits in with your own framing of the encounter with extreme weather. Sure. Well, uh, uh, for Rudolf Otto, uh, religion was about um, this encounter with the mysterious or what he called the numinous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, for, for Otto, the human species is uh, both repelled and attracted uh, uh, by the numinous. Uh, I mean... In, in some ways, though Otto wasn't writing about a tornado, he could have been describing a tornado. The, the, the tornado is both fearsome and yet uh, there's a strange attraction to it. Uh, I mean, you think about the, the storm chasers who are awed by, so awed by the power of these storms that they, they, they follow them around the, the Great Plains, even though they know that uh, this is dangerous business. Hmm. Uh, and, um, but, you know, back to the debate in religious studies, um, I mean, there's this long running debate in the field about, uh, whether, uh, religion is really the product of, um, things other than itself. In other words, um, economics, politics, um, geography, whatever, uh, uh, meaning that religion would be, um, secondary, uh, you know, really kind of a, a cultural byproduct of, of these more primary factors. 
Uh, and, and I'm pushing back against that and saying that there are forces that impinge upon human existence, uh, forces in nature uh, that aren't fully understood and will never be fully understood. And, uh, you know, you can use Otto's term and call them the numinous if you wish. Uh, but, uh, you know, whatever term you use, I think uh, we should acknowledge that uh, we can't understand and analyze everything. And so that's where I think Otto, uh, even though he's regarded by many people as kind of an old fashioned theorist at mm -hmm. this point, uh, that's where I think he, he still has something to teach us. Well, it was a very unique um, sort of entry in, in, into these debates. And so we'll leave it to readers to check the book out themselves. Uh, but but, but I, I did think it was something that was worth worth noting for sure. So you begin in chapter one by relating the story of a, a super outbreak, a series of deadly tornadoes in 1974 and the ways that the people of a particular Ohio town, uh, Zinnia, I think I'm saying that right, uh, dealt with that destruction. And you note that the questions that were asked in that community and the way that modern people deal with questions of theodicy has, in fact, actually a very ancient past. So tell us a bit about that history that you trace and how specific answers were formed in religious communities like in Zinnia. Yes, well, I, I you know, it, back to my own story, you know, when I moved here to the Midwest, uh, I, um, I was born in, and raised in North Carolina where there aren't as many tornadoes. But when I moved to the Midwest, I, uh, I felt this encounter with the tornado more acutely. And I early on uh, learned about Xenia, Ohio, and um, how that community has been hit by tornadoes multiple times. It's really quite uh, uncanny. Um, uh, but you're right, the super outbreak, which I write about in the beginning of the book, is the worst instance of that. In 1974, April 3rd, um, 34 residents of Xenia were killed. Now, that was part of a much larger outbreak of tornadoes in the midsection of the country that killed over 300 people. Um, but uh, Xenia, uh, the, the story there of that Midwestern town really touched me. Um, because it's kind of a microcosm of uh, the American experience with the tornado. And you point to the, the theodicy question. I mean, that's the, the age-old question of um, why um, God allows bad things to happen, why God allows evil to exist. Uh, and that's one thing that Xenia residents wrestled with, because most of them were uh, religious, uh, most of them were Christian, either uh, Protestant or Catholic. And so, you know, in that theistic frame of reverence, it's natural to ask those questions, especially when you're uh, facing uh, the devastating loss of a spouse or a child uh, from a, a violent storm like this. And so that's what Xenia residents wrestled with and, and really... Um, What's so poignant about it, and I think this is a recurring aspect of the American story, they, they, they never were able to fully satisfy themselves that um, uh, there's, there's an explanation that can be found. I mean, some did. So some said, well, it is just God's will. We can't understand it, but it's God's will. And others pushed back against that. 
local newspaper editor pushed back against that and said, if my God, or, or my God, rather, is, is a God who doesn't do these things. Uh, and uh, so then, of course, it raises the question, well, how is God involved in that natural world? And that's, that's the, the, the terrible, haunting question that, that uh, these uh, residents of Xenia were forced to reckon with. So in American history, this this obviously has a long uh, uh, shelf life. Uh, you, you go back to uh, New England to uh, you bring in Cotton Mather uh, as um, one of the really colorful ki- characters of American religion, and you also note that Mather's own reflections on weather give us an example of kind of the earliest American attempts to theorize a doctrine of providence and that discussions of the weather were crucial for the development of this idea. So tell us a bit about Mather's contribution as well as some of the other New England uh, Puritans and how weather influenced theological discussion in early America. Well, I love Mather. He was, uh, Cotton Mather was a, a, a great intellectual, um, uh, but he was also uh, a colorful personality uh, and, uh, and it, only Cotton Mather could have gotten himself into the situation that he did. I mean, there was something uh, by his own uh, thinking that there there was something special about him, and the weather seemed to confirm it. Um, he was preaching to his congregation, and a storm arose, and he felt uh, a leading by the Holy Spirit to set aside the text he had prepared and to speak instead about. Uh, the presence of God and the weather. Uh, and so he proceeded to do so extemporaneously. And at some point um, in the sermon, someone handed him a note to say that his own home had just been struck by lightning. And, well, you know, most people would have just dropped everything and run home. Well, instead, Mather wanted to model uh, for his parishioners, a godly unconcern for the things of this life. And so he kept preaching, uh, and he proceeded to um, uh, make an argument that was later printed uh, under the title Brontologia Sacra, or Brontology is the um, uh, science of um, thunder. Uh, and and uh, he made the argument that though there are natural causes for things like thunder, and I mean, he used that phrase, natural causes, storms are still under the control of God, um, who's the high thunderer, as he put it. And, and that's the tension that, that Mather and the other colonial intellectuals wanted to maintain and that really persists then throughout the next few centuries this idea that yes, there are secondary causes in nature, but ultimately we can trace uh, all things back to the first cause, God. Um, but you know, the question then becomes later on in American history: at what at what point um, does? And, and I'm quoting the old Puritanism scholar, uh, now dead Perry Miller. At what point does the machinery of second causes become merely machinery? Uh, and uh, of course, for some later thinkers in the American experience, uh, they they did come to think of the weather as purely um, um, natural. 
and 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 Mather recognized that possibility, and he feared it, and and the colonial ministers railed against it, uh, and so already you see the seeds of later more modern controversies in that colonial period. Hmm. And there was also I, what I found really fascinating, a controversy over uh, lightning rods. Talk a bit about that. Oh, right. Yes. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 there were a couple of controversies in that mid, uh, well, by, by, you, by the time you get to the mid-18th century, uh, a couple of controversies arose. One was over lightning rods. Is it presumptuous to try to deflect lightning harmlessly? I mean, presumptuous because if you assume that God is behind every lightning bolt, then, you know, maybe God intends to, to strike your house. Uh, and so, yeah, that was one um, controversy, but a similar one was over smallpox inoculation. Uh, you know, is it presumptuous to inoculate against smallpox if uh, God sends disease uh, to send a message? Um, and so, you know, uh, the colonial ministers generally were pretty confident in, in science. And so, you know, there's the famous case of Jonathan Edwards, who wanted to uh, support this new science of inoculation. So he had himself inoculated as soon as he became president of um, the College of New Jersey, Princeton. And uh, the inoculation somehow failed and it killed him. Uh, but, uh, you know, those, you know, inoculation and lightning rods were all part of this debate about God's relation to natural forces. And that's the thing that I would argue Americans are still puzzling over today. And so that's why I think you have to look at that colonial period to understand later discussions. Yeah, really interesting. So you note that winds of Pentecost and winds of apocalypse were two ways that early Americans interpreted providence and the weather. Just discuss what those two outlooks mean. Yes. Well, uh, that's one of the, the strange things about uh, the wind in um, Christianity, which is the dominant religion in the American experience. I mean, the wind is both... Um, life-giving and inspiring, and it's also destroying. Uh, and so the winds of Pentecost uh, are, you know, the, that's the rushing mighty wind spoken of in the second chapter of the book of Acts, where uh, the wind becomes one of the instruments of the Holy Spirit uh, when the Spirit's power comes down on uh, the disciples at Pentecost. And so there's that recurring Pentecostal wind in American history, uh, and I use that term very broadly just for uh, any kind of revival of religious excitement. Uh, but then at the same time, there's the other recurring theme, and that's the, the four winds of the apocalypse. I mean, that's an image that occurs in, in the book of Revelation. And, um, you know, there, God's just waiting to unleash the four winds upon the earth uh, as destroying winds. And uh, time and again, Americans have seen uh, violent weather events or other natural calamities, earthquakes, 
and have have seen in those events the apocalypse. Um, and you know, I mean, it's not surprising that they would see it through that lens. Um, and so, you know, it's it's yet another tension in the whole American experience with the weather that that uh, you have these two kind of opposing forces uh, that are both attributed to God. Right. So it's when you really turn to the Latter-day Saints uh, story and the weather-related calamities they faced when building temples in Illinois that I think you first really introduce what I would say are two more distinct modes of thought that are developing in antebellum America, one based on divine chaos, you could say, and one that's based on science and reason. So maybe talk about the development here. What's going on during this time? Right. Well, uh, the Latter-day Saints, you know, I mean, they, they uh, helped frame that one chapter uh, where um, – uh, I talk about the the destruction of the Nauvoo Temple. Um, that that was, um, I mean, a number of things happened at Nauvoo, but the building was finally finished off by a tornado, um, mm-hmm. oddly enough. And so I tell the story of that. But um, at at the same time, you know, what's happening in that era is um, um, there's an increasing confidence in science and the ability of science to even master natural forces. Um, and so by the latter uh, half of the 19th century, a lot more religious people are speaking in terms of um, the passing away of old superstitions and the ultimate embrace of science and with it um, a, uh, a more rational view of, of the weather and other natural forces. I mean, a great example of this, this emerging view is the, the, the spectacularly popular preacher Henry Ward Beecher, who, uh, who said that, you know, to, to a more ignorant uh, era, and that's how he put it, uh, the weather was just a divine spectacle. And people mm. trembled before it, but he said, "You know that that view is passing away, and we're coming to think of God in more enlightened ways." And and so, uh, you know, that was emerging alongside of the persistence of older views, such as the apocalyptic reading of whether you know the the Latter Day Saints when uh, a terrible tornado happened in Natchez, Mississippi, in 1840, that the Latter Day Saint newspaper times and seasons said this is a sign of the end hmm. of the apocalypse and i mean there were some people still saying that at the end of the 19th century you know when st louis was massively uh damaged by a tornado uh so i keep talking about tension and yet that's a recurring theme of this story that you you have this this scientific view emerging alongside of older, um, in this case, more apocalyptic religious interpretations. Hmm. One of the really interesting historiographical interventions that I think you make here in the book is that you note that weather was really a locus of theological debate that predated both 
the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species, as as well as what Mark Knoll has called the theological crisis of the Civil War, which are traditionally thought of as sort of these two real defining points of theological crisis in American religion. Um, but you note that there were interesting figures uh, in the 1850s and even earlier than that that had really exemplified the idea of having one foot in American religion and one foot in the early scientific study of weather. I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about some of those figures, really interesting people that, that you uh, discovered in the bit of your research and just how they really exemplified this, this theological debate, crisis, however you want to frame it, um, e- even earlier than, than uh, is, is sort of known in the history, uh, historiographical literature now. Yes, well, it, so many um, uh, figures come into this story, especially in the 19th century, as, as these, um, these things begin to develop. But w- one figure who was a surprise to me and very interesting was a man named George Ide Chase, who... Um, taught uh, for years at Brown University, and he uh, engaged in uh, a a pretty bitter controversy with some of his contemporaries uh, who were of a more um, orthodox Protestant uh, kind of conservative persuasion uh, over this this issue of um, God's involvement in the weather. And... um, it, you know, I mean, one of the things that one of the most striking moments in that whole debate was um, uh, when Chase uh, said that uh, basically that we can't know for sure what God can and can't do. Uh, I mean, it was even raising the possibility or at least hinting at the possibility of something that in the 20th century was openly debated, and that is uh, you know, whether, whether there are actually limits on, on God's power, you know, whether self-imposed or not. And so Chase was speculating about that in the middle of the 19th century. And there was this war in the periodicals over what he said. You know, he was opposed by uh, professors at Andover Seminary, in, in Massachusetts, and so they they're back and forth on this, and uh, of course nothing is ever resolved. Uh, but what the why the debate's so interesting is that it 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 presages it foreshadows these twentieth century theological debates in which uh, more openly radical uh, options truly emerge. Mm. And then you mentioned briefly before that it was the St. Louis uh, disaster that really brought the ideas of, of providence and progress into sort of a full-on religious conflict. This was an event that I was sort of unaware of before reading your book. Tell us a little bit about uh, this this weather event in St. Louis and what it meant. Yes. Well, in some ways, I think the St. Louis story is is maybe the most dramatic tornado event of the book in the sense that... Um, you know, there was along this assumption uh, among Americans that tornadoes didn't hit big cities. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just um, a, a phenomena, a, a phenomenon of the um, the open plains. Mm-hmm. But um, in 1896, a tornado hit St. Louis, and and at that time, St. Louis was the fourth largest city in the United States, and 
at least 255 people, that's the number that's usually given, were killed. Um, over 7,500 buildings there were badly destroyed or uh, were either destroyed or badly damaged. Uh, so, I mean, huge swaths of the city were just devastated. And, um, I mean, uh, people, in, the residents of that city were absolutely stupefied by the destruction. And, and, and of course, then immediately uh, the religious debate ensued. And, and so it's an interesting window because you, know, you have all brands of mostly Christianity. Some, there was a large Jewish community there too, um, but uh, mostly Christians debating these things, uh, including immigrant uh, German Lutherans, um, and, and immigrant Catholics and others. And, you know, they, they all wanted to uh, uh, cling to some kind of uh, meaning in all of this. And yet uh, it was hard in the face of that destruction to, uh, to make the argument that, that uh, uh, a benevolent God really intended for this to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it, it just, it, the scale of the disaster was such that it, it widened this debate that heretofore had been a, a, a more localized and smaller thing. Uh, I mean, the, the tornado of, in St. Louis was heavily covered in the national press and, um, so it really brought a new uh, prominence to this debate and that, that then only um, gained in prominence in the 20th century. Hmm. And so this brings us then into the 20th century, into the progressive era. And uh, you begin one of your chapters with the story of an African-American woman, Ellen Burnett Jefferson, who made a sort of Cotton Mather type of uh, – prediction with the weather for her hometown in Arkansas, but it met a very different reception than I think earlier predictions or earlier uh, sermons on Providence had. So what had changed by this point? Yes. Well, uh, of course, Cotton Mather had just um, matter-of-factly told his congregation that God had spoken to him and said, you know, preach about the weather. Well, then in, in 1903, you have Ellen Burnett Jefferson, and, and she was a, a 22-year-old black domestic laborer. And uh, so she announced that God had spoken to her, too. Uh, now, the difference was that she said, God has told me that uh, uh, he's going to wipe Pine Bluff, Arkansas, off the map hmm. with a tornado. Um well, it, so there was a mass exodus from Pine Bluff, mostly of African Americans, and so the white um, commentators on this in the press said, "Well, this just proves the gullibility of African Americans," um, and um, uh, and so then when the tornado didn't happen, um, the the commentators uh, felt vindicated, and and. Um, Ellen Burnett Jefferson was interviewed and she said, uh, basically, the Lord selected me to give this message and I, I had to pass it on. I had to do what he said. Uh, she said, I don't know why 
uh, it didn't happen, but she did not waver in her conviction that uh, God had spoken to her. And I use that at the opening of a chapter partly to illustrate that in the 20th century, uh, over the course of the 20th century, uh, an increasing number of theologians began to think uh, uh, that perhaps uh, this kind of uh, weather prophecy is not quite so strange as, as, as the scoffers would have wanted to say, because uh, uh, at least Ellen Burnett Jefferson acknowledged the mystery of it all in the end. And, and that's what 20th century theology increasingly, I think, came to acknowledge at least in some quarters. And so I think, in hindsight, she looks less uh, strange uh, than she appeared to her contemporaries. Hmm. So the the mindset of most Americans was obviously changing by the 1920s, uh, but the weather-related disasters had not. And in fact, it seems that they become more and more deadly as your book progresses uh, for a variety of reasons. you bring Reinhold Niebuhr into the conversation at this point, and since I have my own scholarly interest in Niebuhr, I wonder if you could talk a bit about his contribution to the conversation on providence and weather. Yeah, I mean, to my mind, Niebuhr makes the most um, compelling contribution to the debate in the 20th century, and I I have to attribute some of that to uh, his upbringing. I mean, Reinhold Niebuhr was four years old and uh, living near St. Louis when uh, the 1896 tornado happened. Hmm. Obviously, as a four-year-old, he wouldn't have remembered it, but he would have heard it talked about in his family. Hmm. And then later on, he wrote about how when you know the family had moved to, to, um, um, another, to a, a rural area by that point, he talked about how he... Uh, and his brother Richard would uh, run to the barn when a storm was approaching, and in the barn they would feel safe. Uh, and um, uh, and and so it always brought to mind a a Bible verse that he had memorized about uh, how there no evil shall befall you. And uh, he he said that as an adult he came to realize that um, that verse kind of had tempted him into an illusion that often afflicts people of faith, that uh, that as a person of faith, you're going to somehow be insulated from or immune to the forces of nature. And he said that that's wrong. That's an illusion. Uh, and what Niebuhr uh, came to um, fixate on was Matthew 5.45. This is a passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, the sun shines on the evil and the good, the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Hmm. And um, Niebuhr was really the first major figure to um, comment extensively on that passage. The two major colonial interpreters, um, Cotton Mather and Jonathan Edwards, who both wrote massive biblical commentaries, didn't say a thing about that verse. Hmm. Uh, but for Niebuhr, uh, it came to illustrate for him what he regarded as the impartiality of nature. Uh, and he said it's a symbol for Jesus of, of God's transmoral mercy. That's how he put it, transmoral mercy, that nature symbolizes that. that uh, 
that God's mercy doesn't conform to our standards of justice. Um, uh, it's transmoral. It transcends our morality. And um, f- for me, that becomes, I think, the most compelling 20th century explanation of the weather. It doesn't solve all the theological problems, to be sure. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it's taking a... Um, a particular verse of scripture, you know, from the Sermon on the Mount and putting it to, I think, very compelling and poetic use. And that's what he does in a sermon in uh, 1952 based on that passage. Hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting uh, viewpoint and very interesting voice in that conversation. So you did quite a bit of personal travel uh, to some of these sites where some of these historic weather events had happened. And I, I thought you wrote quite movingly about your experience near Elkhart, Indiana, where the, uh, the Palm Sunday tornadoes of 1965 uh, killed quite a few people. How did these personal visits and these experiences of these places influence your research uh, and, and your own perspective on the religious ideas and the narratives people bring into their understanding of, of what happened in these events? Well, yeah, that that visit to uh, Elkhart County was particularly um, affecting for me. I, uh, I mean, it was the, the 50th anniversary of the Palm Sunday tornado outbreak of 1965, and that killed um, something like 250 people across a number of states. But the, the, the hardest hit state was Indiana. I mean, it was the worst... Um, tornado disaster in Indiana history. And, you know, I've talked to people in Indianapolis where I live who, who remember that, that day vividly. And so I had the privilege of attending a a 50th anniversary observance, kind of an informal one, really, um, on an empty lot in Elkhart County, um, where a, a family home had once stood. And, um, that family never rebuilt, and um, that empty lot has been converted into a kind of informal memorial. And um, there's a, a a marker there um, that um, combines several quotations, a couple of biblical quotations, and uh, a line for an, an old gospel song. But I mean, it begins to everything. There is a season, you know, so that the line from Ecclesiastes and, um, and then, um, quotes the old Testament, Nahum, the book of Nahum, uh, the Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. But then it ends with, uh, same someday we'll understand it better by and by. And, you know, that's the, quoting the old gospel song. And, to me, it's such a poignant example of theology on the ground, so to speak, that, uh, yes, uh, religious people still want to profess faith in God's involvement in these things. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind. But, uh, but in the end, I mean, the last note of that inscription is mystery. We don't understand it today, but we hope we will understand it by and by. And, and that is what those people still 50 years uh, later are wrestling with. I mean, these, these families where 
uh, you know, children were literally sucked out of homes and dashed to the ground. Uh, I mean, they're still haunted by that today. There are still people in Elkhart County who can't talk about it to this day. And I, I, I found that very powerful to be standing with those people on that day. Indeed. So the final chapter of your book turns um, away a bit from tornadoes and towards sort of the biggest weather news of our day, which is climate change. And you note the interesting fact that just as the news of climate change was sort of first breaking into public discourse in the early 2000s, there was also some crucial debates that were happening in the evangelical theological world that were based in historical debates over open theism. I wonder, first, could you explain that a a little bit and then just talk about um, how modern evangelicalism has dealt with this issue of climate change in both positive and not so positive ways? Yes. Well, it is interesting that that, that the controversy in evangelical circles over open theism, um, came at about that time of the emergence of climate change debates. I mean, open theism basically is a um, is the, the perspective that I was saying earlier was kind of foreshadowed, I think, in the 19th century in a few scattered thinkers. Uh, hmm. But the, the idea that, um, that God uh, is self-limiting in God's power, God um, puts limits uh, on on his own sovereignty. And um, so, uh, I mean, naturally this has implications for the weather. Uh, So, uh, I mean, understood one way, you might marshal this as uh, an explanation for why bad things in nature happen. I mean, if if God... um, you know, chooses to, in some sense, let nature run its course, then that that becomes, in in effect, a kind of theodicy, an explanation for why evil exists. Um, but you know, it it, it created a, a big rift in the evangelical Protestant world. The evangelical theological society had a big debate over it and passed a statement basically condemning it. And um, you know, some of the what one of the defenders of this perspective was bitter about that condemnation and said, you know, the ETS, the, the Evangelical Theological Society, had become the Evangelical Taliban. Uh, and so, you know, evangelicals were just coming off of this debate and when, when climate change was coming to the fore. And, I mean, the, the evangelical... Um, I mean, the strength of Protestant evangelicalism, I think, has always been... Uh, uh, it's its fervor and its concern for the needs of the world. Um, but uh, the weakness of evangelical Protestant Protestantism, I think, has been um, a, a too uh, ready confidence in a, a, a kind of easy providential interpretation of, of the world such that uh, evangelicals have been complacent and even hostile uh, in the face of um, a scientific recognition that, that humans have really, truly contributed to global warming. Uh, and so, 
where this, and this is what I deal with in the last part of the book, I mean, where this uh, had a huge bearing on national policy was that when Trump was elected, um, he um, elevated some of these uh, evangelical climate change deniers to places of prominence. I mean, Scott Pruitt, who for a time served as head of the EPA, uh, Pruitt had been attorney general of um, Oklahoma, and uh, had even, uh, as part of his kind of anti-regulatory crusade, had even uh, thrown a wrench in an effort to try to, to, to have the state pay for storm shelters, tornado shelters in public schools. Uh, and Pruitt uh, was um, uh, allied with Oklahoma's uh, Senator Jim Inhofe, who's still in the Senate, and Inhofe is probably the most notorious denier of uh, uh, human-caused climate change in the Senate. Uh, he wrote a book, a whole book against um, the theory of human or anthropogenic climate change called The Greatest Hoax. And you know, he always points to um, a passage in the book of Genesis that says, uh, you know, as long as the earth remains, there will be cold and heat, winter and summer. And he, he 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 thinks that God will take care of us, and God will ensure that that the the, the basic regularity of the earth will persist. And I, you know, I think that's where uh, a kind of conservative evangelical um, perspective has become downright dangerous uh, on the national scene in terms of um, affecting uh, America's climate policy. Hmm. Well, Dr. Tucson, we're near the end of our time, but uh, before we close, maybe you could tell us a bit about what you're working on next. Are you sticking with the weather? Are you turning to other interests these days? Well, uh, boy, you put me on the spot there, Lane. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I've, I'm still kind of uh, uh, just thinking about uh, of, the, the rollout of this this tornado god book and it for better or for worse it happened during the pandemic which kind of uh made uh, the the original publicity plans a little bit difficult and so you know i'm, I'm still uh thinking about uh possible directions from this book uh, i'm also still very interested in um american christianity broadly and and so would like to write uh more um, in that for, um, for non-academic readers, uh, I, a final note about the tornado God book, I guess, kind of, um, jumping off of your question. I mean, I thought that the tornado God book would be, um, a, a, a simpler book to write when I first started it. I thought that, the the issue of the weather would be more straightforward than the topic of my previous book, which was about American debates over predestination. And uh, as I got into it, I realized that the weather and issues raised by it is even more complicated in many ways, because predestination is, is a more narrowly theological question. Um, but when you bring science and theology together, uh, that's even more complicated. And so I'm still reeling from that, I guess. And uh, 
So ask me in the, another few months what my next project is. Fair enough. Well, you do cover uh, quite a lot of, of intellectual ground, uh, but you do it in a way, I, I will say, that is just very engaging and very enlightening. And so I would just encourage everyone listening to, to check out Tornado God. It really does bring a, a unique lens of inquiry into to these religious intellectual debates and the, uh, the intellectual history of America. So thank you for the book and, and thank you for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Lane. I really appreciate your interest. And thank you for listening. Uh, make sure to subscribe to the New Books in History channel on the New Books Network, and we will catch you next time.